Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet a Canadian screenwriter who's worked on shows such as The Office and Little Mosque on the Prairie to find out what impact the writer's strike in Hollywood is having on this side of the border and what it's like to write for some of those big comedy hits. Author Keo McClear joins me to talk about her new book, Unearthing. It is a remarkable true story about a long-held family secret of how after her dad's death, she discovered through a DNA test that he was not her biological father. From there, she becomes the detective in her own story, pulling at the threads of this mystery and assembling the story of her biological father. It's a fascinating book. She tells us all about it. Her testimony in front of Congress in October of 2021 laid bare what she saw as systemic and destructive problems with the way Meta, parent company of Facebook and Instagram, does business. And overnight, data scientist Francis Hogan became one of the most noted whistleblowers on the planet. Now she's taking a role at McGill University in Montreal. We find out why she chose Canada. But first, another Canadian police officer has died in the line of duty. 42-year-old Sergeant Eric Mueller was ambushed and shot in a small town near Ottawa. He is the ninth officer to die in the line of duty in this country in less than a year. What is happening? What can be done to prevent it? We try to find out. I woke up this morning, as I always do, and I read the news. That's what I do when I wake up, you know, around 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing I saw and the first thing I thought was, not again. Oh, no, not again. The first, the headlines, of course, were that um, a police officer had been killed, an OPP officer had been killed in a town uh, called Bourget, which is, is an area I know quite well, actually. I, I grew up in Montreal. I lived in Ottawa for a while. It's just north of that, that Highway 417 that links the two. And I've been to Bourget. It's it's a small little place, and um, I, I, I read the read the articles, and it talked about an ambush uh, that they had, three officers had been hurt, one had been killed, or two officers had been hurt, one had been killed, and I thought, well, I can't, you know, this is it feels like we've seen this happen again and again and again, and what can we do about it? Um, you know, police shared some more details about it this morning. OPP Commissioner Thomas Carrick uh, says 42-year-old Sergeant Eric Mueller uh, was shot and killed by a 39-year-old gunman. Um, two other officers were also uh, hurt, and uh, Carrick explained Mueller this way. He's described by his colleagues as a coach, a mentor, someone that everybody looked up to, the glue that held his shift together, the best leader that many people ever had the privilege of working for. Uh, that's OPP Commissioner Thomas Couric. Mueller was a 21-year law enforcement veteran. He had started his career in Ottawa before moving to the OPP. He leaves behind a wife and two young kids. Now, OPP described again the incident that happened overnight in that small community of Bourget, east of Ottawa, as an ambush carried out as officers responded to a call around 2 a.m. Uh, one of the other officers remains in hospital in critical condition tonight. The third is recovering at home. A 39-year-old has now been charged with first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. A long gun was recovered at the scene, police say. Now, the gunman's motivations and the origins of his weapons, that's all subject to an investigation. We don't know anything about that yet. But it's the latest in a string of tragedies affecting police right across this country. Uh, Sergeant Mueller is at least the ninth officer to have been killed in Canada since September. The Prime Minister says more has to be done to protect our police. It has happened far too often over the past many months across this country that we've lost police officers in the line of duty 
serving their community. I've been working with the Minister of Public Safety and with uh, the Minister of Justice to see what more we can do to keep them safe, but this has to stop. A reminder, uh, over the past weekend, the Ontario Police Memorial Foundation recognized the deaths of Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong, South Simcoe Police Constables Morgan Russell and Devin Northrup, and OPP Police Constable Greg Pierce-Calla, all who have died this past year in the line of duty. Ontario has seen the real brunt of this tragedy. It's happened elsewhere as well. You'll remember in mid-March, two Edmonton police officers were killed while responding to a 911 call, Constables Travis Jordan and Brett Ryan. Uh, later the same month, the Trois-Rivières, Quebec Sergeant Maureen Bro was stabbed to death while arresting a man with a history of psychiatric disturbance. Um, and last fall in Vancouver, in the suburb of Burnaby, 31-year-old Constable Shailen Yang was also killed while well, stabbed. Well, she was stabbed while trying to re- issue an eviction notice to a man who'd been living in a tent at a local park. And that in a country, a reminder, in a country where officers killed in the line of duty has averaged fewer than two a year since 1990. What is going on? What can we do to try to stop this? Joining me now with more on that is Greg Brown. He's with the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University in Ottawa, but he spent 35 years with the Ottawa Police Service, retiring as a detective sergeant. Uh, Greg, thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Bourget, I mean, I've been there. It's such a quiet little place. And when I woke up this morning and saw that headline, I thought I, I couldn't begin to, to understand what could have happened there. But it looks like, once again, officers were given absolutely no time to respond. They simply walked in to a deadly situation. That's my understanding, Ben. I've been to Bourget many times. I did work on a joint forces uh, drug task force for many years with the OPP, and we were in and around that region quite often. So it's a tiny little hamlet just outside of uh, Ottawa. Uh, my understanding is the the officers responded to a disturbance call where the caller may have indicated that they might have heard a gunshot of some type and uh, essentially were ambushed, had no chance to, uh, to to engage the suspect in any meaningful way. Sergeant Mueller, uh, the the 42-year-old the who was killed, I mean, he'd started with the Ottawa Police Service as a special constable, then moved to the OPP in Bourget. I mean, it's not a huge group of officers. They know each other. This must be devastating for both uh, the OPP in that area and, and Ottawa police. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a small detachment in a rural area. So, you know, in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning, you'd have a very small group of OPP officers on the road, probably half a dozen, I would suspect. Um, and I know that a significant uh, number of Ottawa police officers responded from in the city out to assist the OPP in that rural environment you know the the circumstances again seem so horribly familiar as if this has happened now to a number of police officers in the last six months eight months alone responding to calls um and being ambushed and 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 again you know the prime minister the public safety minister were talking about it today but what do you think is happening here because it feels like a bunch of societal issues are converging and police are finding themselves uh in situations that they may not have encountered before, at least the violence that they may not have encountered before. Sure, Ben. I think your observation that there there is some societal component here is is astute. I mean, we have had police officers ambushed uh, from time to time in Canada in the past. I recall attending the funeral of an officer in Coburg, Ontario, who was ambushed. Um, I investigated uh, with, with an extensive team here the murder of an Ottawa police officer who was ambushed as he sat in his cruiser outside of the civic hospital doing paperwork he was stabbed to death 
But this is a, a new epidemic. I, I know former Commissioner Chris Lewis earlier today uh, has has analyzed some of the numbers, and and he's declared this as uh, you know an epidemic. This is unprecedented. What's going on? And so I've been turning my attention towards speaking to you tonight and trying to come up with a reasonably articulate and intelligent response. And I think there could be two factors in play here. The the first one is is the deteriorating respect for the police in society. We uh, I was teaching my class earlier tonight at Carleton, and yeah. last week students asked me about the acronym ACAB. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all cops are bastards. Uh, this sort of widespread sort of distrust of the police, and uh, and there's certainly been a shift in public sentiment towards policing. Where you know, retired officers that I know, quite frankly, uh, when they're asked by strangers, you know, what did you do for a living? Where it used to be a, a matter of pride to say, you know, I worked for the police. Families would be proud of family members that were police officers. You know, moms would brag about their son who was a police officer. Now, these officers are telling people, well, I worked for the city. You know, uh, policing has taken quite a black eye in the last number of years, somewhat justifiable. We've had some horrible episodes like the George Floyd incident. Indeed. Uh, But but there seems to be a widespread uh, public sentiment uh, against the police, and that could be one thing. And then the other thing, of course, is the healthcare system. I mean, uh, the me- the mental health system is, is in shambles. People that are in distress uh, can't get a doctor. It, those are the two things I've sort of coalesced around. Yeah, I was at that funeral in Coburg as well. Chris Garrett, I remember his name. That's right. Yeah, from um, it was a young. He'd been ambushed. It was some one of those similar incredibly senseless tragedies and i remember just the i remember that story so well because i'd spent time with with his family afterwards and just the devastation and so every time we cover or talk about one of these stories i often think back to to chris garrett and the impact just the devastating impact that has on the force and on obviously on the family of the officer i mean it's indescribable right of course this this will be devastating to the uh, the opp officers in that jurisdiction as well as the the neighboring jurisdictions. I'm I'm a member of the Police Services Board here in uh, Granville County, which is adjacent, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure our officers are are struggling to try to make sense of this. I'm sure they're concerned about, uh, as former Commissioner Lewis characterized this, this epidemic of violence directed at the police. I mean, these are not uh, violent interactions that take place um, during the course of an arrest. That this is an no. individual apparently who. Who was waiting for the officers to show up and uh, and essentially assassinated them, giving them no chance with a long gun um, to even engage? What I found um, so disturbing about it is that it's not. I mean, we often think of these sorts of things as kind of big city issues, right? But this has happened in you know Edmonton, Vancouver. It's happened in Toronto. It's happened in Simcoe, which is tiny. It's happened in Trois-Rivières, which is pretty tiny. Bourget, which is tiny. It's happening in so many different kinds of places that it's hard to put your finger on what ex- on one sort of one cause, right? Because it's happening in areas where the circumstances must be different. The, the environment is different. The policing is different. Um, and yet here we are with these with this with these now nine officers who've been killed in in a matter of you know in less than a year. Well, exactly. And that, that's when I was turning my attention. I was trying to think of a, an explanation that, that transcends geographic areas. Um, as, as you said, you know, this is happening in all kinds of places that are, that are much different than other places. So what's the common denominator that we might want to look at as coming into play here? Uh, clearly, I would suspect that somebody at two o'clock in the morning who lies in wait for arriving police officers and then uh, assassinates them 
is probably not playing with a full deck. I'm suspecting this alleged individual has some mental health challenges. And so, right. as I were to earlier, the mental health system is in shambles. Uh, community mental health is essentially non-existent. And so I don't know anything about this individual, but my strong suspicion is that that he obviously was struggling with some severe mental health challenges that weren't being addressed. I guess solutions is, is what the issue is now. How do you better protect police when it comes to being, I mean, it feels like they're being, I mean, I know there's no such thing as a routine call, but it feels like these ambushes are happening in what would be considered to be relatively low risk calls. How do you prevent it? Well, I mean, sometimes it's inevitable, sadly, to say, Ben. I mean, if someone is determined to ambush an officer, uh, what we were speaking about earlier, the, the officer in Coburg, right. I think somebody called 911, reported a, a crime, and then when the officer showed up, they murdered them. Uh, that's right. That, that's really unavoidable. Um, I mean, in, in some instances, uh, better training might be might contribute to, to a better outcome. It's really hard to say. I don't know the nature of the call, but I mean, if officers are responding to a, a report of shots being fired, um, there are tactical things that, that you can train to, to mitigate against the danger. Um, one, one, of the, one of the conversations we have quite often in the academic community is this idea about militarization of the police. And there's a lot of pushback against police militarization, but uh, I would say as a former officer and someone that uh, led a platoon of, of officers working out on the streets in downtown Ottawa, um, you know, having long guns available uh, to police, having improved body armor available, having training on certain tactics is a beneficial thing. I realize that there are some in the public that, that aren't appreciative of seeing the kind of paraphernalia that officers are decked out in these days. There, there's some meme sort of things, you know, showing a police officer yeah. from the 1980s when I joined, when we had a 38 revolver and a oak nightstick, and, and today looking much more like, you know, combat soldiers. But, but those kind of things do save officers' lives. They they do protect officers. So, um, when people are are getting animated about this militarization of policing, they, I, I'd encourage them to look at the other side of things. When police are facing very violent people that have an advantage. Um, having the weapons and the training to deal with those issues is important. And, and in that context, I think about school shootings. You know, when you see a group of officers going in to engage a heavily armed suspect, we need to give those officers the best chance of survival. One of the things that I, that I worry about is just, I mean, if I were a police officer now, I'd be worried on these calls. Like that must sink in. And then, then you end up in this sort of downward spiral where the police become more and more concerned about their own safety. People who would want to do harm become more and more resistant to police. And then we end up in a situation that we just don't want to be in in this country. I mean, I think we've always been um, proud of the fact that although policing, we've had some vivid examples of how dangerous policing can be in this country. I think, again, of Chris Garrett or Mayor Thorpe, there's many, many examples. But at the same time, there has been this idea that it's not like it is in the U.S., that there is a certain, you know, there's a certain respect for authority in this country, and it feels like it's slipping and that police are going to be worried every time this happens. It's another reminder of this. And, and how do they react without, without starting to sort of internalize a lot of that concern? Well, well, that vicious circle that you've identified, Ben, is a real concern because, of course, every police officer in the province has consumed this news. They're they're aware of this epidemic. And so you're going to have officers that have a much uh, heightened awareness 
out in the field. And, and that's where we have tragedy on the other side, right? We have a, mm-hmm. a motorist who disobeys police commands, who's maybe reaching into the glove box for their insurance while the police officers tell them to put their hands up. And then suddenly we have an officer who's afraid and, and a little more, uh, you know, I hate to use the term trigger happy, but you know, a misperception of, of the threat in the context of what's happening today. And then you have somebody shot by the police and then this vicious cycle sort of spins around and around. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess there are no easy answers as to why this is happening. There are no easy solutions. We just know that there is yet another family um, who've lost their loved one tonight. So Greg Brown, as always, thank you. My pleasure, Ben. Anytime. Here's someone whose name became very famous about 18 months ago, Francis Haugen. My name is Francis Haugen. I used to work at Facebook. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help. Francis Haugen there uh, in front of the Senate about 18 months ago, November 2021. That was a bombshell when she came out with that. Uh, earlier, she'd shared a trove of internal documents. She'd worked at uh, Facebook for several years. She shared an internal document, uh, internal documents with the Wall Street Journal, which spelled out how much the company knew users on their platforms were spreading mis- misinformation, creating divisions within societies, and that they largely ignored the, the problem, as she was mentioning there. Um, she spent two years there at Meta, at Facebook, after working for Google, Yelp, Pinterest. At Facebook, she studied how the social network's algorithm amplified misinformation. It was exploited by foreign adversaries, stuff like Russian interference and so on. So she knows this stuff inside out. Perhaps her most talked about revelation at the time, and it was really talked about, uh, was that she leaked one internal study that found that 13.5% of UK teen girls in one survey say their suicidal thoughts became more frequent frequent after starting on Instagram. Another leaked study found that 17% of teen girls say their eating disorders got worse after using Instagram. This was really, she sort of was was blowing the whistle and pre- presenting stuff. Now, Facebook, of course, completely denied all of this, but she was laying down facts and she had documents to talk about the stuff she was talking about. In a nutshell, she said that social media companies, Facebook especially in this case, um, know how their algorithms work. They know what they promote. It's all about engagement and they don't care. That's it in a nutshell. Well, it's been a whirlwind 18 months since then for her. She's been, she was on the Bill Maher show. She's been all over the place. She's written a book. She could probably go just about anywhere right now because she is one of the foremost best-known advocates pushing for social media companies to be more accountable and more transparent. So again, she could have gone just about anywhere she'd like. She's chosen us. She's chosen Canada. How could we be working with McGill's Center for Media Technology and Democracy as a senior fellow in residence? Uh, that won't confine her to Montreal, though. She will be heading out across the country as well on some projects related to teaching people more about how these algorithms work, preparing us to understand better how social media works. Um, so from whistleblower to McGill, Frances Haugen has been on quite the journey of late. Her book, by the way, is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And uh, she joins me now. Frances Haugen, thank you so much. Congratulations. 
Thank you. Excited to be here. So, I mean, I, I know that you have, have you spent a lot of time in Canada? Because I know you were, t- you were mentioning that mm-hmm. you, you sometimes refer to the fact that you grew up in southern Canada, <laughs> Iowa, to be exact. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've spent a lot more time in Canada in the last year. So um, I would say I've been up there maybe four, four times, maybe, maybe five. Uh, I think it's a very exciting place right now from the perspective of what should we do about democratic governance of, of our online spaces. Why is that? Because I think you you pointed it out, or it's been pointed out elsewhere, that the debate around this in America, like so many things, has gotten so hmm. politicized that it feels like there mightn't be a way uh, hmm. to make any headway. Whereas in Canada, it's still politicized, but maybe less so. Did mm-hmm. you, do you see an opportunity there? I think there's a huge opportunity. Um, one thing that that is probably not immediately obvious to Canadian listeners is uh, the number one tech company in terms of lobbying in the United States is Facebook. So in the United States, a huge amount of money has gone into certain narratives about how we can't do anything, like nothing is possible. Like we, content moderation is our only solution. You know, we have to save freedom of speech. And in reality, Europe has been able to move ahead by saying, no, we should focus on the design of these products, not focus on content. And I think Canada is getting an opportunity because there's the, the, the lobbying forces haven't been fully turned on Canada yet to be able to ask similar kinds of questions. And yet it's been pointed out that uh, those very same companies don't see Canada the way they see, say, Germany or France. They feel like Mm. uh, Canada is very much the near abroad for them, English speaking, right next door. That Mm. legislation here, Mm -hmm. it might be something they'll fight uh, tooth and nail against. I think think it will definitely be a much harder fight than what Europe experienced. Um, Because remember also, every lobbyist at every big tech company can speak English. Very few of the lobbyists can speak Latvian. Very few can speak Norwegian. Right, of course, uh, and 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 the the but, I mean to go back in time, and I, again, mm-hmm. I was telling you earlier, I was, I was. It feels like this this has been going on for a bit, and yet it's been less than two years since mm-hmm. since the whistleblowing, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a bit about that decision, because I know you've spoken about this a lot, but uh, mm. what what a twenty months it has been for you. I came forward because I was working on uh, the civic integrity group for Facebook. So that was the group that was fantastic, making sure that Facebook was a responsible force in society, a positive force in society. And right after the U.S. 2020 election, they dissolved our our entire division. Uh, They said, we are so important. We need to be integrated into other parts of the company. What's a little scary about that is in the wake of my coming forward, Facebook did step up safety spending for, for a time period. But uh, in the last six months, because they undertaken what they call the year of efficiency, they've started cutting corners again. And they've right. you know fired lots of safety teams. They fired their AI safety team, for example. Um, they've cut moderators in some of the most fragile places in the world. Um, you know, East Africa has seen ethnic, large-scale ethnic violence facilitated by Facebook in the last two years. And yet they cut the number of, of safety professionals working on East Africa in just the last six months. The concerns I was worried about back, you know, two years ago are still relevant. We still don't get transparency into what's happening at these companies. And because they know they can operate behind the curtain, you know, they can make decisions and not, and we never get to see the consequences until we live them. They're going to keep cutting corners as long as we let them. You pointed out that there is no ecosystem of uh, of transparency and responsibility here, unlike, say, aviation or something along those lines. And yet totally. these, these social media yeah. products are so pervasive in our lives. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about what we call the ecosystem of accountability. Right. That's the idea that that uh, you know we're not just kept safe by laws; we're kept safe by things like investors that manage for long-term 
for, for long-term profitability, who minimize risk, for litigators who understand when someone cuts a corner and um, holds those people accountable, even things like legislative aides that understand what's possible when it comes to writing regulations. We're missing all of that when it comes to social media. And a big part of that is because we can't kick the tires. We can't crash test the vehicles. When it comes to things like cars, we can take apart a car and form our own theories about why that car is dangerous or safe. Because social media is allowed to hide all their choices and the consequences of those choices, we don't get to develop our own independent perspective. And so I think that's what's one of the most exciting things about the next couple of years is um, Europe passed a law called the Digital Services Act that allows for the first time governments in Europe to ask questions, researchers in Europe, civil society groups to ask questions about how these products work and get answers. And the question is, should Canadians have similar rights? Should they be allowed to ask questions and get answers? For listeners to understand the, the the issue here, and you've pointed this out numerous mm-hmm. times, many many times, it's not the content; it's the algorithm. It's the way the content mm-hmm. is pu- pushed to each and every one of us. And I know we talk about this a lot, but I think even as myself, as a frequent social media user for work specifically, I forget that I'm being tailored stuff. And, and you totally. found that those algorithms are in fact the core of the business, and they're not mm-hmm. they're not good actors necessarily. Obviously. So people, uh, when, you know, when, we, when people are polled about what is online safety, you know, what should, we, should we care about online safety? People think what, what they're being asked about is like, should we have good passwords? Right now, when you open any social media platform, you're not seeing a representative sample of what was created on that platform. You're seeing a little tiny slice of what the platform decided to amplify. Right now, we don't get to see what the biases are in that algorithm. What gets, what gets filtered out? What are you not seeing? And what we do know from Facebook's research is that one of the things about something called engagement-based ranking, that's when we reward content that gets us to click on it, is we, we get content that is more extreme. You know, it's angrier. It's more likely to be nudity or violence. It's more likely to be hateful because those things attract interaction. We need to have systems in place where we can make sure that algorithms are not just optimized so that businesses are successful, but so that they they represent what we want in our our media environment. You know, if we amplify extreme content, we're going to get more extreme content. You know, we have to treat our online spaces with as much care as we treat our in-person spaces. And you've mentioned that 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 sends us down these silos. I was reading this article recently about mm-hmm. TikTok and teen suicide. Now, not to mm. you know that that's a mm. TikTok being, I gather, for many reasons, the stickiest of of those social mm. media platforms. Now, I think it's really important to understand how different TikTok is from, say, Facebook. Uh, for most people's version of Facebook, or or particularly Facebook from say 2010. Unlike Facebook, TikTok doesn't require you to be friends or you you mostly don't communicate with your friends and family. You communicate with random people around the world. So TikTok gets to um, pick out what you see using a computer algorithm. So they have an artificial intelligence that, that tries to imagine what would you like? Like, what's the content that would most appeal to you? Because that keeps you swiping. It makes you watch video after video. But if you start getting in a feedback loop, there's no way of, of dislodging that feedback loop. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a kid who's feeling a little anxious. You know, maybe school's hard. Maybe you're worried about your grades or getting into college. Um, and so you start looking at some more negative content. 
if the algorithm knows that that content is sticky and the reality is when you, when people are in distress that kind of self-soothing uh can you can you can end up ruminating you can end up looking at more and more of it their feeds become you know half full of of quite negative content and what we've seen in cases like Molly Russell um this young girl uh who died in the the, the United Kingdom by the time sh she took her own life half of her Instagram feed was content like this so it has real serious real world consequences. Francis, tell me a bit about that decision. It, uh, it's, you, I'm sure you mm -hmm. have many options, many, many options out there as to what you could do with the next few years. Why did you choose this one? There were many reasons I decided to, to, to pick McGill as my, you know, what's known as like an academic perch. Um, probably the most important is I really, really appreciate public policy school there. So I'll be working um, very closely with someone named Taylor Owen. He's one of the most grounded uh, public policy people, I think, in terms of finding practical, reasonable ways forward. I think the second reason also is is I worked very intentionally to be bipartisan. Like, I think these are I, social media accountability and transparency shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, this is not about picking good and bad ideas. It's about asking, do we have the right to even ask questions about social media platforms and get answers? Because right now, guess what? We don't have that right. If I were to pick uh, just about any school in the United States um, to work with, right now we have an extremely partisan environment where, you know, there's red team and blue team. I think uh, my hope is that by working um, through McGill, Canada is seen as a, as a kind of a third space um, and that I won't be seen as picking uh, one side or the other. And what will that involve? I know that there are some initiatives right mm -hmm. out of the gate to try to raise awareness about this in this country, which I think is very beneficial considering uh, your position and your prominence. I mean, that's going to be a big, that's going to be a big deal in, here, I think. So uh, some of the stuff we're do doing is related to kids. So this summer, there's going to be something called a, a, a digital assembly uh, in Winnipeg, where we're going to be working with high schoolers um, around understanding what their needs are in terms of online safety. And um, so that's things like, you know, what do they think should be solutions to these problems? But it's also things like uh, just helping people to even understand, you know, what's the space of the conversations we should be having to have social media be democratically governed. So I'll give you an example. When we poll people about what is online safety, people think it's things like, do I have a safe password? When we should be talking about things like, how are these systems designed? Why did I see that post on Facebook? Why did I see that video on TikTok when I didn't see these other ones? You know, who gets to make those decisions and why are they making those decisions? Those are all really critical topics that we need to discuss to have these systems live in a democracy and yet right now, people aren't even aware that those are conversations we could be having. So the core of the work I'm going to be doing is around helping people to gain more context around we could be having different kinds of relationships with these companies and helping people understand that there's a lot of positive, constructive ways forward, that we have solutions to problems. We just have to choose to use them. I suspect, too, that have starting that conversation or continuing that conversation in this country is also another way to try to nudge the political debate, because like Canada, like so many others, but you, mm -hmm. you mentioned the European Union is, has moved ahead. But Canada, like so many other countries, policymakers struggle with trying to figure out it's how true. to tackle this. I mean, I, I was saying earlier, you know, they're still trying to figure out social media. Now, ChatGPT has come along. I mean, it feels like they're being lapped mm -hmm. by technology time and time again. I would imagine you have some mm. hope that you can impact the debate here over that as well when it comes to mm -hmm. policy. 
I'm so glad you brought up ChatGPT. Um, so we're moving into this age of large language models. And sometimes people get very scared with these dystopian visions of like maybe Terminator is going to come true, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, a lot of the challenges around these large language models like ChatGPT, the, the, the shortest term impacts are going to be directly on social media. That we're going to see the rise of much more sophisticated information operations, much more sophisticated bots. So you're not going to know if the person on the other side of your conversation is a person or is, you know, a robot. And so figuring out how to make these systems safer is very, very pressing from a time perspective. But the second thing is these AI systems that we're talking about now, I think are, are very similar to the problems that we've had with social media in that they are opaque systems. So if we go and uh, talk about, say, cars, you or I can go buy a car and crash test it ourselves, you know, if we had the money. You know, we can take that car apart. We can say, like, does this car actually do what the car company claimed it does? When it comes to social media, when it comes to ChatGPT, lots and lots of choices are going into how that product was made. But we don't get to see the choices. We don't get to inspect the choices. We don't get to figure out what are the values and the biases that are in these products. We just have to accept them. And so I think the process of us developing ways to govern social media, it's very similar to what we're going to need to do in order to govern systems like ChatGPT. And the work at McGill begins soon. Francis Haugen, thank you so much. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. welcome, to, welcome to Canada North. Excited to be here. Thank you. Mother's Day is coming up uh, this weekend. Don't forget to do something nice, right? Um, and while you're trying to figure out which, what might be on mom's wish list for a gift this year, work-wise, we're getting some insight into exactly what that work wish list looks like. Uh, Pre-pandemic, the notion of working from home or flexible work schedules to help with, you know, childcare and all that stuff was rare, confusing at best. And then suddenly, a significant chunk of the workforce discovered that you could, in fact, do your job, at least some or most of the time, in a different way and in a different place, like home. And for many working parents, especially with younger kids, they really liked what they saw. Consider this back in 2021 survey said, and this is just five months into the pandemic, had already found that a third of the Canadian workforce was concerned about returning to normal working conditions. And of that number, half were mothers whose youngest children were younger than six. And new research from Robert Half out now in time for Mother's Day this year shows that if anything, those wants are even more pronounced now. It reveals that 68% of working parents believe remote work options are the benefit that best supports them. 68%. 36% of working moms would take a salary reduction to be able to work fully remote. And six in 10 working moms say they are exploring the job market now. Six in 10 looking, looking for new, potentially looking for new gigs. That's a lot of people. 82% um, of them say that fully remote or hybrid work options are what would be a real winner for them in the workforce. Of course, we've tried desperately for a long time to try to uh, allow women who've had children to come back into the workforce, to allow parents as well, to figure out how to manage childcare and work, uh, because we need those workers out there these days. So with more on all of this is Tara Perry. She's Director of Government, uh, Director of Permanent Placements, rather, uh, Permanent Placement Services at Robert Half in Vancouver, and also a mom herself. Tara, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be here. 
Thank you. This is a prescient, uh, timely survey because I think as we head into Mother's Day, there's uh, we're still kind of emerging from the changes that happened to the workplace during the pandemic and trying to figure out whether there's, there's not a way to make some of those those changes the beneficial ones, at least for for parents, how mm-hmm. we don't sort of make them permanent. And I guess it's been a bit of a struggle. But this survey pretty much points out what mums, uh, because it is Mother's Day coming up on the weekend, what they're mm-hmm. looking for, and really that flexible schedule thing is a huge, huge, big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal for working parents in general. Our recent survey findings say that working parents, 68% of them are looking for remote work options, uh, and 26% of them are looking for flexible schedules. When you break it down even further from there, that's where the difference between moms and dads kind of comes into play. And and 36% of working moms would take a salary reduction in order to be fully remote in their work compared to uh, 29% of working dads and compared to the market at a whole, 23% of people who aren't parents would take a pay cut in order to be able to work from home. That's a big number considering the inflationary times we live in. It's a big number. And I think it's a number that what it shows us is that people are prepared to take less money in order to have more flexibility. And I think employers need to really take note of that. Because as you well know, the search for talent is incredibly competitive these days and finding you know, good employees with good track records um, have a little, I'm not going to say they have their pick, but getting there. You, yeah, you're totally right. The unemployment rate across Canada remains steady around 5%. Here in British Columbia, it's a little bit lower than that, but it's still at you know all-time lows across the board. In some of our other surveys that we've recently done, we've found that 50% of working adults would consider looking at new jobs in this year. Yeah, if you're an employer, that must be a that must be a scary number looking at your Zoom call or out across your office floor <laughs> and thinking how many and, and the number there I, I gather is really high for working moms who are also yeah. looking searching now for a good fit for their lifestyle. So the the general public the number is 50% amongst working moms specifically it's much closer to 6 in 10. It's it's 57%. So 6 of every 10 mo- working moms will look at new jobs this year. And so when you think about that from a retention perspective, from a what am I offering perspective, or as a future employer, how can we entice people to come and work for us? I think it's really important that people are aware of just how big these numbers are. I don't know how to if I'm reading these numbers properly, but it seemed like there were some encouraging numbers within that survey on company parental leave pay, for instance, extra family planning benefits, those numbers were really low. And that might suggest that companies generally know how to get it right if forced to. Yeah, you're correct. So when you look at these findings, 68% of working parents want remote work options. And that hybrid falls into remote work options. So it's not fully remote, but sort of remote and or hybrid, 68%. 26% Uh, are really looking for flexible schedules. So maybe they want to be able to do school, drop off and pick up. And so log out from nine o'clock to 9.15, come back, log out from 2.45 to 3.15 and come back and and finish their day. 
When you get beyond those, the numbers are much lower. So only 4% of working parents uh, would move for a company that offers better parental leave pay, and only 2% are looking for companies that would offer better family planning benefits. And so family planning benefits are things like adoption support or IVF support. Right. When you look at these numbers, though, they do paint an, an interesting picture because I think one of the opportunities in all this is that we know traditionally women particularly, parents generally, but women particularly, especially of children under the age of you know young children, don't enter, re-enter the workforce in a way that we would hope given, given the dearth of employees out there. And this is a really great opportunity to, to try to bring them to try to bring them back if you tailor it properly. If you tailor it properly, and I, and I think this is the important part for employers to get, the way we worked pre-2020 is no longer the only option available, uh, especially working moms with young kids, to go back to Monday to Friday, eight to five in an office space when there are so many other employers offering some kind of flexibility around things like that, you really have to ask yourself, who are you compromising and what candidate pool is going to be available to you when you look to hire? Am I just making everybody come back to the office full-time because that's what's easier for me as the employer and the leader? Or is that actually what's best for the business and how the business functions? Because there are a lot of people losing out on great talented moms who just can't compromise anymore. Yeah. And your numbers lay bare what it is they're looking for, right? They want the remote work option. I, I read a, uh, an article not long ago that sort of spoke about what it was like, and you'll know this, heading into that pre-March 2020, how much confusion there was around sort of having to remote work, even in an emergency. I mean, we weren't set up for it properly, no. but if there was a family emergency or, you know, a kid, you know, kids get sick, daycare, as we all know, that there was a real problem around that for moms mm-hmm. to be, and parents, period, to begin with. Oh, huge problem. I mean, I'm case in point. I I have young kids. Pre-COVID, I was not set up to be able to work remotely well. And it was a huge issue for us as a family to figure out when a kid was sick. We were calling in support. We were doing half days me, half day my husband. You know, you're you're looking at all kinds of ways to make it work. And now in this post-COVID era, where we are much more set up to be successful working from home, kid calls in sick, it's not ideal, but I can still do my job from home and I can still be a present parent and a successful working mom at the same time. And that's a game changer for me. So I can't imagine what that's like amplified across the population as a whole. Tara, I remember back to, to, you know, March of 2020 when everyone was like, we were leaving the office. We had our remote stuff set up very quickly. We, no one knew how well it would work. And everyone was like, we'll see you back in a few weeks or a few months. There was a lot of pressure within organizations to bring that back, that sort of sense of what it used to be, that normalcy, quote unquote. How have companies reacted? Now, here we are more than three years later. And I gather there's, there's been some push and pull. We saw it with the recent PSAC strike. Um, there's been some real push and pull between employers and employees on this one. There's definitely some push and pull. There's no perfect answer because if you dig into some of the numbers that are out there, you can definitively see that productivity across the board is actually down with 100% remote work scenarios versus companies that come back into the office. However, 
that's not the perfect answer anymore. You know, we are a culture that is much more aware of work and life. We're much more aware of mental health and its importance to productivity. And so there's no clear answer, but the pendulum has definitely swung back. Anecdotally, within Robert Half, I would say we see maybe 10% of the roles that we work on are fully remote. Okay. Probably 30 to 40% of the roles that we work on are hybrid of some way, shape and form. So, you know, two or three days from home, two or three days from the office. And then fully 40 to 50% of the jobs that we're working on are mostly in office. So four or five days a week in the office. And I can say quite definitively that it is much harder to recruit for those positions that require somebody to be in office full time. I suppose people are looking, even if they may not take full advantage of the remote options, they want to know they're there, right? That was an interesting thing I was looking at, Mm -hmm. too, is that people want clarity around these as well. They don't want it to be kind of, you know, gray about how these remote work options work. Like, do you qualify? Do you have to ask for permission? How does that, what are the criteria? They want sort of clear clarity rules, yeah. That was was definitely uh, one of the key bargaining pieces for PSAC is they right. wanted clarity. They they want it to be very definitive and defined. And I think that's hard to do because it's so circumstantial. You know, if you're a new hire into a new job that you've never done before and you're sitting at home in your bedroom working by yourself, is that really the best onboarding experience? Oh, is that really a, going to set no. you up to be successful? It is was that, a nightmare. Yeah, it was right? a nightmare. Yeah. Like it's really, really hard to do. But if you're 10 years into the job and you know the job inside out and backwards, do you have to be in the office 100% of the time in order to do your job well? So there's two ends of that spectrum. But what we have found, it's really beneficial for new hires to be in the office with tenured employees. But tenured employees, they're going to get asked questions all the time. So their productivity might be a little bit lower in office and higher at home. But the learning through osmosis and that distribution of wisdom happens best when you're in an office with some of those new recruits. So I don't think you can have clarity around it or be really defined sometimes because are you new to the role or have you been at this for 15 years? Because maybe the rules are different in those two scenarios. And I think that's why a lot of companies just, you're working three days a week from the office. Everybody's here on Tuesday. You can pick your other two days Uh, or whatever the mandate might be. That tends to be the most common response we see right now. So as we head into Mother's Day 2023, based on the numbers that you've done on this survey, what is your advice to to prospect to working parents and to the to the employers that would like to hire them? Know that you have options, but but also, you know, just be really mindful about why you are looking to move and what is in it for you. And then talk to your employer. And my advice to employers would be don't be afraid to be creative don't be afraid to move with the market, but then work with your staff, understand their why. Otherwise, you might lose 50% of them in the next year. Well, Tara, thank you for your insight on this. Happy Mother's Day to you as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Speaking of family, I was mentioning my parents, every family has its secrets, don't they? We all have our own. 
don't we? Sometimes those secrets are revealed and everything blows up. Sometimes they're kept for ages and they're only found out long after the people who've kept them are gone. But imagine discovering uh, something has been hidden from you for your entire life, a truth that challenges everything you thought about who you were and where you came from. It is the basis of a powerful, and I have to say, beautifully written new memoir called Unearthing by Toronto author uh, Kaya McClear. She was born in London to a Japanese mom and a British father who'd worked for the CBC, or who worked for the CBC as a foreign correspondent. He'd met her mom while stationed in Tokyo. The family of three moves to Canada in 1974. There's many twists and turns through it all. They're a small unit, just her. She's an only child. Uh, it's a bit of a volatile marriage, and she confronts the reality, of course, of being um, half Japanese at a time in Toronto, growing up about the same time as I did in Montreal, uh, when Toronto was not a diverse place, when you found yourself a different, of course. But she goes on to become a successful writer. Um, as many kids do, she takes care of her father when his health starts to fade. And he passes away in December of 2018. And one way, um, you know, her father had come from London. He'd been put up for adoption when he was young. She didn't know a whole lot about his background. Of course, they lived abroad. They lived in Canada. And so she wanted to hold on to a piece of her dad and not knowing much about the family, wanting to know a bit more about where she came from. She decides to get a DNA test. And that test reveals three months after her father's passed away. Uh, that the father who raised her is not her biological father. And suddenly McClear becomes a detective in her own life, unraveling this family mystery, this family secret that had been kept for her for decades, piece by piece, assembling the story of her biological father. Along the way, those big questions come up, right? Who are you? What exactly is kinship? What does it mean to be a family? And it all comes together in this book called Unearthing, which is about love, marriage, hope, regret, life and identity, really. And Keo McClear joins me now from Toronto. Keo, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, Ben. It, it is so cliche to say truth can be stranger than fiction, but there were times reading through your book that I had to remind myself that you were telling a true story <laughs> because because it, it, it is in some ways so incredible what, what it is that, that, uh, that, that you unearthed. But tell me a bit about, I guess we should, for listeners' sake, we should go back and sort of set the stage about you and, and where your parents met and where you were born. I gather your parents met in Tokyo and you were born in London, came here to Canada when you were quite young. That's right. Yeah. So my parents met in Tokyo in the early 60s. My dad was a foreign correspondent for the CBC. Um, my mother was a Japanese artist and they married and then moved to London. And then we eventually came to Canada in 1974. And you describe your childhood and I've heard you describe your childhood as being as being the family was very close knit, but but in almost in a claustrophobic way at times as well. Like there was it was a very you were a trio, the three of you, you're an only child. That's right. Yeah. So they both came from their countries of origin to a third country and we had no family here. So, I mean, I was an only child and you you, you must know what that's like. Indeed. Um, yeah. Lots of so, reading. Yeah, exactly. I actually, I, I referred to my books as my siblings, but uh, it was a very kind of tight, protective family. And I really love my parents. And I think that um, I didn't really have a sense of what it was like to be part of another family. But I think at a certain point, I realized that it was a little suffocating and that their kind of protectiveness and possessiveness wasn't actually always healthy. And I think actually books provided me with a kind of portal to other worlds that I really needed at a certain point. And I think it was mentioned too, that you'd sometimes go to see, and this happened to me too. I'd go see, you know, the families of my friends and they sort of seemed to have very 
normal, quote unquote, normal family lives. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be nice? I think I once told my mother, I wish you were a lawyer or something along those lines, which she has never not reminded me of. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I actually feel like grateful for the upbringing I had because it was a little anarchic and chaotic. And my parents were, you know, gamblers. They were, you know, they had an extremely interesting kind of social kind of situation. And I mean, as an only child, you kind of get rolled into like hanging out with adults a lot. And I think it was actually kind of fascinating in hindsight, but at the time it was a little bit kind of unruly. I think, I think I craved routine a little bit more than I had, but it certainly made for better stories. I think than a lot of my friends had growing up. Oh, absolutely. And and more interesting, like being babysat by very strange people and so on. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was, I mean, I don't regret it at all, but you're right at that age, you sort of crave a little bit of stability and you don't often find it under your own roof, or at least it's not what you think someone else has. So, so throughout this time, there's never any, there's a secret lurking, a very big secret within the, the trio lurking there that no one ever talks about. I mean, my parents were very operatic. They had a very volatile marriage. I knew there were affairs. I knew that my father had um, a mistress now and then. I knew very little about my mother's um, kind of life. She was, I mean, as I say in the book, I think mothers tend to be kind of shadowy backdrop in a lot of our lives. I think we see them as a kind of constant ambient figure. And so at least at that point, I think she was a little less dramatic because my dad was, you know, a foreign correspondent reporting on wars, traveling all over the place. So I kind of saw my mother's life as simpler and kind of more, um, you know, what I saw was what I got kind of thing. But it turned out that she had a whole other kind of life that I knew nothing about, which I discovered after my dad died. Your father develops Alzheimer's, right? And you sort of take care of him at this point. And he passes away in 2019. And you make this very fateful decision. And it's one I think that maybe we've all thought of doing at some point, but you take a DNA test. What made you decide to do that? Because very much the story, and I don't want to give away too much, but the entire story kind of uh, revolves around that, that one decision. He had definitely had memory loss and he had suffered strokes and he ended up dying at the end of 2018. Mm-hmm. And my father had been put into foster care at a very young age. Um, He was four years old in London. And it was a kind of open wound for him. And he really didn't like talking about that part of his life. So there's just a lot of secrecy. And I could see my father underneath the layers of kind of professionalism and accomplishment. There was like a really wounded child. And I know that sounds a little cliche, but as he got older, and, you know, a lot of that kind of the reputation, the kind of um, the biography, the the accolades, all that kind of strips away as you get older, you know, I was left with a man who was really vulnerable and quite fragile. And I thought that it probably related back to his childhood and that the sense of kind of not belonging, he felt the sense of abandonment he felt when his mother gave him up for foster care. And I knew nothing about that side of the family. And so I thought, you know what, I want to learn about that side It's the Gallagher side. And I'll learn about this Irish family and maybe I'll get in touch with somebody who's related to me and I'll just get a fuller picture of who his mother was because all I had was a tiny little photograph of her. I did this DNA test kind of on the encouragement of a friend who thought, you know, well, this is the quickest way to find family. Like I did it honestly with a sense of disconnection. Like I wasn't really thinking I'd discover anything. I wasn't really invested in the results. And then I honestly, I can't remember how many weeks it was, but I received like a little ping in my inbox um, with the notification saying that the results were ready. And I opened it up and it was complete shocker. 
it kind of upended everything I thought was kind of biographically true about my life. And I mean, honestly, like, I think I was in complete shock. I remember I was away at the time and was trying to process it. Keo McClear is author of Unearthing, a story of tangled love and family secrets. We're talking about the book. It is a true story uh, about her family, her father from England, her mother from Japan. They met in Tokyo in the 60s. They lived briefly, or they lived in London for a while. That's where Keo was born and then came here to Canada in 1974 um, and lived, lived a, you know, a, a, an eclectic, if fairly normal lifestyle in Toronto. And then after her father passes in 2018, a DNA test changes things. And the story very much tells in a very interesting and and much grander way than I'm going to explain it right now, sort of goes through that whole process. So you, you the DNA test returns, and, I, and you, you made me familiar with a term that I didn't know, which is NPE, about what you discovered. And what you discovered was the secret that had lived in this little, in this trio of yours for 50 years. That's right. Yeah. I think that these results, actually, these kind of DNA surprises are increasingly common. I think that, as I said, like we go in with a sense of kind of maybe interest um, or, you know, whatever of wanting to kind of find out about our ancestry. And then, you know, I can't remember what the percentage is. It ranges from like two to 10% of people who do these tests discover something completely unexpected that kind of alters their sense of identity or kind of their sense of kind of trust in the people that they, you know, grew up with. Um, and a big category of those people are NPE. So that it's called non, a non-paternity event or not parent expected. And that's really what happened to me. It was a complete surprise, as I said. And it was so much so that I actually ended up doing a second test. Right. I think the customer service representatives at these companies are probably fielding calls every day by people who can't actually piece together the kind of a sense that this is this could be true. It really puts your sense of trust in people kind of on the line. And that was like kind of my feeling was that if everything I thought was true isn't true, then what else is like not true? And so you kind of go around with a sense of suspicion. And I think that was the immediate feeling I had afterwards. I was kind of testing surfaces and like kind of trying to meet people at eye level to see like, you know, what was being hidden from me. And I also tried to figure out if anyone else knew. Um, the story beyond the trio you mentioned. Right. Uh, you know, uh, your father is obviously not around to talk about it. You find out that he's not your your, your birth father, but clearly the, the man who raised you, right? So, and there's a lot of complexities around that. I think one of the things I took away from, from your book was that it, it was a reminder that, you know, love, family, parents, how parents form you, nurture, nature, betrayal, it's all one messy, tangled ball. And how you make sense of it and how you look at it depends on what angle you take. And it can be very complicated and, and, and very personal. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, family, I mean, I think the takeaway for me, and I felt this even before this experience is that family isn't DNA. It's a social relationship. And so the thing that I really felt was that I wish my father, my mother had felt kind of comfortable sharing this information with me, but I also know that secrets are kind of generated by the times, you know, like there's certain social conventions that make speaking of things difficult for people. I think that if it was now, for example, there would have been a different sense of permission maybe to share things, but I think they were very much of their time. And, you know, it was, it was an era of secrets in many ways. My feelings about kind of being left out of the kind of, of this kind of really important knowledge, um, is maybe naive on my part because I, I think that they really felt they couldn't tell me. 
it was interesting because I, I, looking at, at, at you as a youngster, there's a great picture of you and your mom in the book as well. You could see how they wouldn't tell that person, but it's hard to imagine given who you've become, you know, a writer and so on, that, that at some point, they could, I guess it was just too late to sit you down and say, before you find out yourself, or maybe you never will, but we need to share something with you. And I think a lot of people reading through, that's that's the one that, that's the aspect of it that seems that seems kind of bewildering even for the for the reader, let alone for the author. Yeah, no, I agree. I completely agree. But I also think I've spoken to people who've carried lifelong secrets. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some people do. And I think there are many, there are different mechanisms and mechanics to like why we don't disclose secrets, why we keep them. And I think in some ways, maybe you come to believe the cover story you tell over and over again, like not truly believe it, but maybe it's some kind of um, subconscious level, you just kind of decide that it's easier as a default to just kind of go with the cover story. And I don't know, like, I just think that my dad honestly didn't trust that people would stick around. I think that had he had a happier upbringing and yeah. he might've felt like love was kind of a constant thing, but I think he was afraid. I think, you know, I can only say this and like speculate because he's gone and I can't have this conversation with him, but I think that a lot of people are afraid that things aren't unconditional and that love might vanish. And I think my father was one of those people. And so I think that made secret telling and secret sharing a lot more difficult for him. To to reveal uh, you know, another father somewhere potentially would be to open you up to that sort of abandonment that your father already fully knew and f- was fully, no doubt, spent a life worrying about. Exactly. That's exactly it, I think. I don't know if the word's jealous, but he was a very possessive person in the sense that he, and I say this, I think somewhere in the book is that some people I think live life with a sense of scarcity. You know, my father really like experienced scarcity, both through poverty, but also emotional scarcity, you know, as a child. And I think that's really foundational for people. I think if you feel abundance in your life, that it's not threatening when people you love, love other people you know, you're a lot kind of more open to that idea. And you don't think it's going to be like, it's a pie that's going to get subdivided and you're going to get a smaller piece. Like that's a scarcity mindset. Um, And I think that was my dad's mindset, but I don't think everyone's like that. And I think it comes, and I don't think it was necessarily who he was meant to be. I think it happened through circumstance. And I think we're kind of sculpted through all these things that happened to us. Um, And it's not irreversible, but I do think that a lot of the things that happened to him as a young child really shaped the person he became. What reminds one, because oftentimes, as I was saying off the top, when you read through the book, you sometimes forget you're reading a true story just because of the way that it's written. And yet, like life, it doesn't wrap up with a bow at the end, right? There is no, it continues. Did you feel that way as you wrote it down? I mean, I think you said before that writing things down isn't necessarily meant to be cathartic. It's meant to be something else. Uh, But when one finishes your book, it feels like there is not a resolution. And I think that's perhaps that was clearly done because there isn't one. Yeah, that's so true, Ben. Like, I, I mean, I do think that I'm, I'm so glad that you picked up on that because I do feel like, you know, in some ways when you write a novel, there's a sense of closure in the sense of the characters, you can kind of pack them away. But when you write a memoir, you write anything nonfiction, like the people are still moving and living in the world. And the idea that you can put everybody into boxes and then close them up and that's it is kind of like a misguided idea, right? I mean, it's kind of like a, like a wild impossibility that you can kind of finish a story when people are still around and changing and the story is changing. And so I really feel like I got to the end of where I could get to with the book. And it was almost like like a truce with the kind of 
time that I had to write this. And, you know, but then as soon as I finished, I really felt like people were still changing. And, you know, my relationship with my mother continued to evolve. And so I feel like it's just kind of really just a moment of capture. Like the book is kind of what it is for a period of time. And it, you're right. There is there is a sense of resolution in certain ways. And there's certain things that are unresolved like out of necessity. So much like life itself. Kia Overclear, thank you so much. It's, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Unearthing a Story of Tangled Love and Family Secrets. Thank you, Ben. We've been talking about famous names tonight. Do you share your name with a famous person? Do you know someone who does? Uh, my next guest will let you know why it is we're talking about this tonight, but what kind of impact has it had on you? Do you often, do you get more social media calls? Do you, do people, do people tease you about it? Did they tease you when you were young? We heard from someone who knew a Diana Ross. We heard from someone who knew a Rod Stewart. We heard from someone who grew up as a Steve Martin because his mom didn't want to call him Dean Martin. Um, there are others out there. I was mentioning both my parents have names that famous people have. David Byrne, Catherine O'Hara. Thus, Ben O'Hara Byrne. Let me know. one 9898 is the text line. one 9898 Let me know who you are and where you are. And do you or someone that you know share a name with someone famous? And what is it? And what kind of impact has it had? Um, could be an interesting one. One of the most interesting ones is when you share a name with someone famous who you don't know much about because it's not in the same country. Like you wind up in a place like England and you didn't really know there was like a TV actor that has your name because they weren't that famous over here. I've had that happen to people that I know as well. Did you catch any of uh, CNN's Trump town hall last night? I, I, obviously I was on the air, so I didn't. I, I watched I watched highlights of it when I got home. Um, well, the network today is coming under a lot of fire for essentially allowing uh, Trump, as he's wont to do, uh, the former president, of course, uh, current front runner for the Republican nomination for 2024, to essentially steamroll his way through the entire 60 minutes. I mean, he basically said whatever he wanted to say, um, and pff, any challenge to it, any attempt to try to rein him in, did not work. Um, he had the audience it was meant to be a town hall, of course, in New Hampshire, where the primaries will be held in the not too distant future. Uh, it's an important spot, of course, for for naming. Not that important, but it's part of those early primaries that kind of dictates the momentum of uh, of what happens in the Republican primary. So it makes sense to have the leader, the front runner at this point in time on, right? But he's Donald Trump. So, of course, he took advantage of the free airtime in front of the New Hampshire room, packed with many of his supporters who were cheering and clapping um, to say just about anything. I mean, any any lie you could think of, any falsehood that he's uh, spewed over the last while, he shared them again last night uh, from election, stolen elections, you name it, on and on. I don't need to tell them all. I mean, I don't need to share them all again. And then the poor CNN reporter, Caitlin Collins, was there trying to kind of keep it all under control. And, you know, for, for Donald Trump, I mean, this is his wheelhouse. He's been doing this for decades, right? Getting up there, stealing the spotlight, saying whatever he wants to say. Here's a taste of it. I was negotiating with NARA. Do you know what NARA is? The National Archives. Extremely, but you don't extremely left group of them. people. Extremely left. And I was negotiating with They're them. All of a sudden, they raided my house. They didn't raid the house of Joe Biden. They didn't raid Obama. But Joe Biden didn't ignore a subpoena to get those documents back like Joe you Biden did. And took so that's 1,850 the question. But that's the question that investigators have, I think, is why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the okay, question. Okay, it's very simple to that's answer. That's why I asked it. 
It's very simple to you're a nasty person. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Does that sound familiar? Uh, needless to say, the audience, which was a pro-Trump audience, was was happy about it, um, and it was a bit of a disaster. Ultimately, I mean, there's a lot of debate about about what utility it could possibly have served. This all came the day after a Manhattan jury awarded uh, E. Jean Carroll five million dollars in damages and found Trump liable for sexually abusing her in the mid 1990s. And he, of course, uh, even that wasn't off limits. He called me derogatory comments about her and said the whole thing was rigged uh, that could get him to more legal trouble. And it all came on the same day, that circus came on the same day, that Republican Congressman George Santos from New York pleaded not guilty to 13 counts, including wire fraud. He told reporters he has no intention of resigning despite a false, a litany of false claims about his past and said he's going to run for re-election, imagine. I, I have plenty of evidence that we will now be sharing with the government in this case to make sure that I can defend my innocence. Are you planning on running for re-election? Yes, I am. And why should anybody believe you now? Well, like I said, I will prove myself innocent and then we'll move from there. And re-election is a very far time away from that. And again, you will not resign. I will not resign. Yeah, George Santos there. What's happened to shame, right? <laughs> That's what I wanted to know. Uh, but let's get a sense of how Washington was seeing this all today. Joining me now is Taylor J. Swift. He is the Senior Policy Advisor with Demand Progress. Taylor, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, having me. It's it's great to be here. And yes, it's a constant cycle of every single 24 hours brings up something new here in the States. So glad right. to be on. Let's start with with the one that I think everyone has been talking about today, and that's uh, Donald Trump's town hall last night on CNN. I mean, I could see where CNN, I could see what they were trying to do, but if you're going to put on a circus and you invite the circus master in, that's what happens, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is what Trump does best is says crazy things, gets crazy amounts of attention and creates continued division. And it clearly works for his political reality, obviously his his fans absolutely love it. And, you know, it's playing into his game. I'm I'm quite frankly kind of shocked that he was given this platform because of some of the things he said previously about CNN and many of their anchors. But, you know, it gets them ratings and it's just the system here in the United States that uh, this kind of attention is a good thing. And so he's playing that game so well um, for this primary season. Yeah, I mean, you you worked in. I know you you spent time uh, working around. You spent a lot of time working around that environment. The idea that you just don't answer questions, just make up your own reality, is is a really. I mean, it's a really interesting one because for someone older like myself, there was a time where you know politicians would you know stretch the truth or you know avoid questions at all costs or just not answer. But rarely did they express so many falsehoods with so much confidence. Absolutely, and I think that goes to back to even years prior of just the lack of accountability that we've seen throughout his entire career, both in the private sector and, of course, while he was president, uh, so much so that, you know, he continues to to say that the 2020 election was stolen and that it was taken away from him when clearly we've seen mountains of evidence that show otherwise. Uh, he clearly uh, was one of the pinnacle points to cause an insurrection uh, here in the United States on January 6, 2021, it um, got him impeached for the second time, which obviously has never happened before. But he still has a, an extremely strong base of supporters that will, quite frankly, back anything he says. So we are kind of living in a very dangerous time, especially with how the primary season works here. Um, there really aren't. I mean, there are formidable challengers, but the way that it works is he's been 
the front runner for so long, especially being the former president, um, it's going to be hard for folks to to really beat that, uh, especially because his brand is so powerful and so overcoming within the Republican Party. Yeah, we watched that again last night. I heard someone once refer to, it, refer to it as the end of shame. And I think no one embodies the end of shame better than uh, the uh, the freshman congressman from New York, George Santos, who uh, has been well, it's been well documented that he essentially lied about everything he's ever done before he was elected, then he got elected. And now he's been indicted. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, Tell me a bit about what's happened to George Santos. And, and I gather he has no intention of stepping down. Yeah, so you're exactly right. So, you know, he's a member from New York. He was indicted a couple of days ago on 13 federal charges. Uh, some include wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and of course, false statements to the House of Representatives and Congress. I could go down the laundry list, but this this list is extremely extensive. And he just continues to kind of go with the flow on this. Uh, he appeared before courts. He pled not guilty. He intends to not only stay in Congress, but he also said that he plans to run for re-election. Right. And, you know, there is an extremely complex situation with all of this because there's the political problem. There is the conference rules problem. And then there is the, of course, you know, the House ethics problem behind all of this. So the political problem Obviously, the House GOP has a razor thin four seat majority. It's very, very, very close. And Santos has been a pretty big factor in a lot of these votes that have been going on over the past week or so. I mean, the one that comes to mind is the debt limit vote last week. He held out his vote for a while and was actually the deciding vote. I know it was 217, 215. So, you know, it could have swung either way, depending on how he ended up voting. Amazing. It's amazing to think that. It's amazing to think that the debt ceiling might depend on George Santos. But sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely. And, you know, it just it just raises questions. uh, You know, if he has to continue to appear in court, like how much business the House can do if he's out. George Santos has voted with the Republican Party 98% of the time since being in office. So he is a solid vote for them, even with all of these political scandals and these ethics violations. So that makes it really difficult for the GOP leadership to kind of, you know, push him out. There is also this complex situation with the uh, Republican conference rules. So not the rules of the house of representatives but the the party gop party rules Mm -hmm. so there's actually a rule in their conference rules that says any member that gets indicted must be kicked off of their committees so santos was actually appointed to two committees at the beginning of this congress the small business and science committees but he volunteered (laughs) he volunteered exactly he voluntarily removed himself serving but that's still Something that needs to be taken into consideration is that there's actually rules that means he needs to be formally taken off of these committees. Moreover, you know, House Speaker McCarthy said that he doesn't support Santos's reelection, but didn't say either way that he should resign. And so it just goes to show that they need those votes when when taking these difficult um, you know bills to pass in, in the House. And I gather, I mean, um, kicking people out of Congress is is exceptionally rare. Uh, I, I noticed I was looking into it just two two cases in the past. I don't know, 
40 years or some, um, and only 12, I think, overall, most of them from around the Civil War. So there, there is a precedent here that parties tend to, for many, often for political reasons, as you talked about, sit on their hands until they're, in fact, indicted, right, or until they're convicted, rather. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, the House Democratic Caucus said yesterday they're still sifting through some of the indictments and some of the violations to determine whether or not they actually want to pursue measures to expel him. You know, there have been plenty of examples of members resigning before convictions. The most recent one was Republican Chris Collins of New York. He, mm-hmm. he resigned in September of 2019, one day before pleading guilty to insider trading. Um, actually, he <laughs> he was charged in January 2020 to 26 months in prison, and uh, then President Trump pardoned him in December of 2020. Right. So There's a few of those, there. I remember. There yes. are a few of those. <laughs> yes. And then there are a couple recent examples of folks resigning after either a guilty plea or a conviction. So the most recent member was Jeff Fortenberry. He was a a Republican from Nebraska. He resigned in March of last year, uh, you know, on charges related to illegal campaign contributions. And then before that, Republican from California, Duncan Hunter, he resigned in January 2020. Uh, one month after pleading guilty to using hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaigns funds for personal use and travel, uh, Duncan Hunter was also pardoned by President then President Donald Trump in December of 2020 as well. Taylor J. Swift is a senior policy advisor at Demand Progress in Washington. Yeah, he, we're speaking tonight about things. It's been a really busy, as always, a really busy 24 hours in Washington. Uh, the Title 42. 42- Border policy has been getting a lot of coverage, uh, Taylor. It's something that I don't think a lot of people in Canada know much about, but it was instituted uh, during the COVID pandemic to try to prevent the spread of COVID and in many ways prevent people from crossing the border. Uh, it expires tonight. That seems like a big policy issue for the government. And the GOP have a uh, border security bill that they want to pass that's not going to go anywhere outside the House. But uh, this is another issue that's bubbling up in a big way again. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned it, the policy is coming to an end due to the uh, ending of the COVID public health emergency nationally. Um, This is going to spur what is likely to be a pretty significant increase in the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. And one of the many reasons for the expected spike is many of the folks have been sent back to Mexico under the policy. This is going to be a pretty significant influx. And like you mentioned, there is going to be this bill that is going to be voted on quite quickly on the House of Representatives. I mentioned before about how razor thin these margins are for the House Republicans. It doesn't seem like that's going to have a lot of momentum on the Senate side, however, right? right? There might might be pretty significant debate about it, but I don't foresee, given the 60-vote threshold and the Democratic majority, them taking up this kind of bill in the Senate. Right. And of course, I had to ask you this. We talked about it before, but I was saying to you earlier, both my parents have names that belong to famous people. And of course, when I saw Taylor Swift, I thought, wow, that's uh, that that must present some challenges for you. Tell me, but you have a fantastic story behind the name and how you got it. Uh, Tell me, tell me a bit about that. Absolutely. So um, it's a really funny story. So the singer Taylor Swift was actually born, I believe, in Western Pennsylvania in 1989, right? She has the the album called 1989. I was actually born in Northeast Ohio, extremely close, like the bordering state to Pennsylvania. And 
the way the name came about was uh, my parents really couldn't decide on a name. And my dad was a huge movie fan, right? He loves movies. And one of his favorite movies was Planet of the Apes. The main character in Planet of the Apes, played by Charlton Heston, the character's name was Taylor. So they decided based on the character's name that they were going to choose Taylor. Their last name was Swift. And then the rest is history, of course. And, you know, it definitely has uh, some drawbacks. Of course, you know, people love to make jokes, but of course, I just love to shake it off. Ha <laughs> <laughs> um, ha. But yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. George Taylor, I guess, was Charlton Heston's name. I remember Planet of the Apes before I was born, but a long time ago. When you share a name with someone who's well known, it's just trying to find your space in places like social media and so on and so forth. That That must be a challenge. Absolutely. So a lot of my social media's handles are actually not the superstar. Uh, just to, just to make sure, um, you know, we clarify that it is not Taylor Swift, the singer, that I am just, you know, the person that works in congressional politics here in the United States. Do people ever communicate to you or at you or all the things that people oh. tend to do? Absolutely. I there is a running joke in my family and friend group that for the past decade, I just get random Facebook friend requests from people all over the world, even though my picture is clearly a male from the Midwest, (laughs) not a blonde female. So it's very funny. Well, Taylor, uh, thanks, thanks for thanks for playing along with that. I was curious. Obviously, it's one of those things that I, I know you know this. It's always the elephant in the room, right? Taylor, it's been great. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. My God, you're so old. I want my check. (laughs) You're a writer, all right. All right, here you go, Simpson. I want another one. You're a funny guy. How would you like a staff job? I'll start you at $800 a week. My chest hurts. All right, leeches. I want you to see what a good writer looks like. His name is Abraham Simpson, and he's got something you couldn't get at your fancy schools. Life experience. Actually, you know, I I wrote my thesis on life experience. And quiet! Quiet! Abe, tell them about your amazing life. I spent 40 years as a night watchman at a cranberry silo. Wow. (laughs) Abe Simpson, comedy writer, it's called. Um, I I, I play that or I play that for you because we're going to talk about the screenwriters strike in Hollywood right now. In Hollywood, it's happening in other places other than Hollywood. It's happening in the U.S. I mean, anyone who writes for American television, um, a lot of them belong to the Writers Guild of America and all 11,500 film and TV writers that belong to the Writers Guild of America are out on strike and have been for about 10 days now after their contract expired. They're looking for higher minimum pay more writers per show, less exclusivity on single projects, better residuals, and some assurances um, that production companies will agree to safeguard around the usage of artificial intelligence. So, I mean, the last time they went on on strike, you may remember this, it was about uh, 2007, I guess, uh, so 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, and that one lasted 100 days. We've already seen the impact, all those shows that are that churn out new shows just about every day, like Jimmy Kimmel, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, uh, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, all of them have been off the air because the writers aren't working. Um, and, you know, they've been called. I mean, I think we don't think enough about just how important writers are to all those shows, whether they be the kind of comedy I was just talking about, late night comedy, or whether it's your favorite, you know, serial or the thing you stream on Netflix, whatever. Uh, so they are looking for for more money, and we just don't know how long it's going to take. The issue, of course, is that comedy writers can live elsewhere. They can live on this side of the border, of course, and there's a lot of U.S. series that are filmed here. Um, so what kind of impact is it having on Canada? 
To explain, I'm joined by Toronto screenwriter Anthony Q. Farrell. His credits include The Office, Little Mosque on the Prairie, Run the Burbs. His new show is called that he's working on is called Shelved. Uh, Anthony, thank you for your time. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell me the background here, because I think a lot of people see Strike and they know what they I think they think they know what writers do, but aren't exactly sure what the dispute would be about why they would walk off the job. Maybe just a bit of a you know pull back the curtain a bit so that listeners understand what it is writers are looking for and why it is they're not being given what they'd like. I think it's one of those things that our jobs change quite often, like things progress you know, TV changes. We went from, we went, streaming is becoming a big thing. It wasn't that back in 2007. In 2007, I was writing on The Office and we went on strike mainly because this thing streaming was happening and we didn't know what was going to happen. We wanted to get, to make sure that we were a, a part of that and make sure we got paid and, and compensated for the work we that we were going to put into it. And there were some questions about whether we should or we shouldn't. And it's not going to be a big thing. Don't worry about it. And then it blows up. And thankfully we did get a piece of that. Right now what's happening is these producers, these corporations, they are boasting about their record profits, how well they're doing. They're telling their shareholders things are tippity top. And for writers, we've, we've realized that our, our uh, rates have actually kind of gone down. Like The average writer is getting less than they, they did 15, 20 years ago when the producers were making less money. We're making less money. So we're in a situation where like, well, if they're making record profits, shouldn't we be also be doing a little better than we have been over the last little while? So now we kind of did some digging, figuring things out. We feel like there are certain ways that we can kind of help to get those profits. Those ways are just by increasing the minimums that we have, uh, making sure that more writers are allowed to be a part of the writer's rooms, making sure that there are sub, there are enough weeks to actually craft these shows that, that we're working on. They've been kind of chipping away at all these little things over the last 10 years, and it's gotten to a place where it's just unfortunately untenable anymore. Uh, so we have to get into our walking boots and, uh, and march for, for our supper. Right. And I remember 2007. It's amazing how much everything has changed since you were working on The Office. But there's so much content out there and all of it has to be written by somebody, right? It's not being written by the producer generally. How has it happened that there's so much content out there? It seems like we have all this stuff to watch and yet the piece of the pie given to those who create it. Um, or at least put it down on paper, has started to shrink. It seems like an odd uh, action reaction. And I think this is, you know, this is unfortunately normal in our society, which is the people who have the money try and make you feel like you don't deserve the money that they have, right? So it's kind of like, we'll take your idea off of you, but we're not going to pay you. You don't deserve all this money. You'll just get this level. And they kind of say like, if you know, there are a lot of other writers out there. So if you don't want, you don't want to write it, we'll find someone else. And so you get to a place where you're accepting things just so you can do your dream job. And, you know, we love doing this job. Like I love writing. There are times when you, people always say, I do it for free, but you shouldn't. <laughs> you yeah. should well, you've seen it happen in a lot of businesses, right? I mean, the creative side yeah. of things has been because people want to do it. People are lining up to do it. Not everyone has the talent to do it, but people would love to do it. That uh, in some way, ironically, it, it lessens the value, which is a very, which is a very strange contradiction. It really is. And it's unfortunate to get to that place where you kind of look around like, I love doing what I'm doing, but I can't afford to do it anymore. You you fight and struggle to get to a place where you can you can reach your dreams. And then that's like, you can't afford to live your dream anymore. And this is a place where a lot of that a lot of writers are in right now. It's hard to swallow that when the people who you're working for are dancing around the stage going like, look at all the money we're making. And you're like, yeah. oh, hold on. <laughs> yeah. 
what is, I think a lot of people would be curious to know what work is like for you, what, what a day looks like in, in, in your profession, whether it be from the office or shelf that you're working on now. How does, how does that work? How do you get the gig? And then how do you, how do you do it? For me, it was a lot of years of working on working in theater, doing stand-up. You know, I worked in an office during the day and then I would do all these things at night for free. I started writing and what, what it meant was basically on my first big job was writing on the office. I would be there in the morning. We would start figuring out what the characters do, write outlines and then scripts. Those scripts would then be given to the actors. We would be on set, uh, work with the directors. These jobs don't last very long. They're only a few seasons long, right? If you're lucky. So you got to always be pitching new ideas, figuring out new content. It's My days are usually pretty filled. <laughs> yeah, it sounds busy. I mean, Mandy Patanka, the actor, the, you know, said that writers are the heartbeat, right? And And I think... People who watch the finished product uh, will see the credits, but they don't understand necessarily the vital role that the writer plays in the in the in the process in bringing this to life, bringing it from creation to completion. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, and it's a it's a fun job. I love doing it. So I I, I always tell people I'm always happy to talk about stuff like this because I feel like I'm very lucky that I get to do this as a job. Um, so I'm happy to, to fight for my fellow writers and also just be you know. Uh, an advocate for all things cool and creative. So oftentimes we'll see, you know, we'll read 11, I think it's 11,000 members of the Writers Guild of America. It's not mm-hmm. massive, have walked out. They're in LA, they're picketing in Hollywood. And you think you're, you're sitting on this side of the border thinking, well, I guess, I mean, we have a Canadian Writers Guild. I, I wonder what impact that will have on us. What impact does that strike have? Because you're a member of both, right? What, yeah. what, 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 I guess you'd have to be, right? What, what impact will that have on, on, on the Canadian art scene? It's twofold. So the, the the direct impact is with the American productions that are happening in Canada. There are a lot of shows that happen that get shot in Vancouver, get shot in Calgary, get shot in Toronto, Montreal, out east in the Maritimes. There are a lot of shows because Canada is such a beautiful place and there are amazing places, there are amazing locations to film things in. American companies will bring their shows up here. So immediately there are a lot of shows that are not happening right now. And that's that's costing the crew, it's costing directors, all the people who would normally be working on those sets, they're out of jobs right now because of the strike. The other side of things is that writers in Canada, what's interesting to me is that the US writers, the WGA started getting very worried when the writing model started turning into something that is normal for the Canadian writers. That being, we normally don't have very big writers rooms here in Canada. Because we can't afford to have uh, big writers' rooms, we normally have shorter weeks uh, for for less weeks to write the same amount of scripts uh, because we're trying to shrink how many uh, how much money we put into the the writing side of things. When that started happening in America, that's when things started to get a little hairy for the writers. And so I'm hoping that if there are some gains made on you know south of the border, we can look at those things for Canadian writers and kind of like say, listen, this is one of those things that. We are struggling with here as writers in Canada. Is there a way that now that the Writers Guild of America has won those things, can we get them from the producers here in Canada? So I'm hoping that that's some of that stuff. <laughs> I've been referring to it as trickle north. I know how trickle works. I yes, understand. It doesn't often down. work. It doesn't often work. But yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but we're hoping. We're hoping. In the in the meantime, though, I mean, will Canadians who watch? I mean, I I know that we've noticed it already with some late night stuff and so on. But will Canadian will consumers of of your of what you create? When when do we start noticing this? Uh, I know we've already started a bit, but it feels like uh, the full impact hasn't been seen yet. 
Yeah, and I think it just kind of goes to show like how long these things take to get from from the scripts to to your TVs, right? So I think you you'll see the 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 short term ones with like you know the SNLs, the late night shows, the you know there was an MTV award show that got canceled because there are no writers. Mm-hmm. So those things you'll kind of see over the next few weeks, like those things will start start falling away, and that's just because they 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 have a cycle where they'll shoot something and then they'll it'll be on air like that night or the the next few days. Yeah. With the shows like the broadcast shows that you like, I think those ones that shut down in May, you you'll really get a sense of that like June, July, August. Like that's when you'll start to realize, oh, the new episodes, yeah. Yeah, the well is drying up. There are a lot of shows that have already been shot that the the broadcasters have, you know, are are going to be putting out there soon. So there will definitely still be new content and I I'm, I'm definitely encouraging you to to watch that content because it it was written by people who, you know, who have put a lot of work into it. So don't 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 feel bad about watching the TV shows while the strikes happening. That's totally fine. Like our our guild has, you know, has told us like absolutely watch those things. But understand that there there won't be anything new coming your way. And if you want uh, the writers to uh, you want the writers to get back to work. Just let those producers know like it's not we're not asking for that much. Someone was kind of pointing out that the the amount of money they've lost in the last few weeks pales like it's it's way more than the, what we're asking for. You're doing all this work to just not not pay us when you you're you're losing all this money not paying it's it's just a yeah la- la- labor negotiations are ever such in some ways I, I mean in 2007 you were mentioning it you were working on the office at the time streaming was coming and there was concern about that it feels like here we are in 2023 and the that you know streaming the concern of what the future looks like has now become artificial intelligence it's become ai how, how does that how is that a concern i mean clearly one can understand the concern i think anyone who writes for a living understands some of the trepidation about about AI, but how does it fit into the context of this current situation? I think one of the one of the things that the Writers of America is kind of just letting people like the AI is going to be moving very quickly. What we're talking about for AI right now, in a month that'll be different because it's right. <laughs> it's moving so fast. So how do we carve out a place where? Yes, if it's a great tool that we can use, that the writers can still maintain their IP, maintain their jobs, and and be the ones who are in control of of that tool i think that's just a, a fair way to kind of look at it and heaven forbid it becomes really sentient that's a different conversation and we'll that's a different conversation yeah i don't know if we'll be worried. <laughs> we won't be so much we won't be as worried about it. i mean we'll all be worried about everything but we might not be as worried about what we're watching on netflix yeah but you know you're getting yeah. to a place now where you're seeing these these uh programs they're writing scripts which right now they're not great but you know they'll learn and then they are they're getting to a place where you can kind of like create content with AI just from telling it to create it. So yep. you're cutting out a lot of jobs by telling an AI, what would a, a murder she wrote look like if it was Viola Davis instead of, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then it'll spit out like three minutes of like murder. She wrote with Viola Davis. And you're like, does Viola get a little something out of this? Do, do the writers of murder? She wrote get a little something out of this. Like we're getting to a place where that's, that's almost kind of feasible. So that's a legit we, question. It's a legit. How do we question. take care of the people who are creatives and make sure that their IP and the the, the work that they do is is protected? Well, Anthony Farrell, thank you so much for uh, for letting us for pulling the curtains aside and letting us see how this all works. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 